Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Locked On Canucks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Justin Morissette, and this is your Locked On Canucks for Tuesday, October 29th, the morning after the Vancouver Canucks absolutely dominated the Florida Panthers from start to finish in a 7-2 drubbing at Rogers Arena. The Canucks scoring at least five goals in three consecutive games here. And unlike Friday night's action, they got out to a 5-1 lead and actually held it this time. Didn't just hold it, but added to it as well. Yes, This game was like Groundhog Day, getting a do-over, living the same exact scenario uh, two games in a row. It's not going to be like this night after night, though, when you look at how these California teams are playing at the moment as the Canucks get set to uh, head out on the road and play the Sharks, the Ducks, and the Kings all in a row. Maybe it will be like this for a little while yet because all three of those uh, California-based teams have been putrid to start the season. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, they got an opportunity to do exactly uh, what they'd done before and make good on it this time. They didn't have to live it over and over and over again millions of times like Bill Murray before he finally won Andy McDowell's heart. I almost said Andy McDonald. That's a defenseman who I think was bought out by the Flyers. Not a lovely actress from the 1990s. But that's neither here nor there. No, they only needed one chance at redemption to get this thing right. And, uh, you know, this is a team that Travis Green over the last four days or so, uh, basically ever since uh, the postgame presser that he gave after the Washington game, uh, right through the weekend, every media availability had right up until his pregame interviews, his one-on-one with Brendan Batchelor for the broadcast on radio that he uh, does, the Green Report before each and every game on Sportsnet 650. I have listened to Travis Green speak at length over the last several days, and I have probably heard him use the phrase pissed off upwards of 10, possibly 15 times. It has come up time and time again. Yes, he was mad about that Washington game, even though he believed that his team played well, as I uh, played for you yesterday, even though he uh, stuck with it right to the bitter end that the team played well and they just got unlucky. He was still pissed off. He said it again and again. Yeah, we're pissed. We should be pissed. That's a recurring theme that has come up with Coach Green over the last several days. His team came out and played in that first period like a team that was pissed off. They got out uh, to a 5-1 lead by the end uh, of period number one. They were up 4-1 to one midway through, not even midway through, before the halfway mark of the first period. At one point in that game, the Canucks were on pace to score 24 goals over the course of 60 minutes, which obviously was not going to happen, but fun to make a little joke about nevertheless. An incredible start to this game. And they were determined. They were fired up. They were pissed. They wanted to go out there and correct the wrong that had befallen them on Friday night. And they did just that in an inspiring performance, really the most complete game that they've played all season long. You could point back, of course, to the home opener uh, where they beat the LA Kings 8-2. And uh, I would say that you, you you have an argument to make about that game being a very complete performance as well. But when you pour over the ice time, in last night's action against the Florida Panthers, that's when the story really starts to write itself because 
some of the talking points that we've gone over here on the show over the last several weeks about how uh, ice needs to be spread around more evenly. You're going to be running Alex Edler into the ground playing him this way. Uh, Tyler Myers might even not be able to withstand some of the minutes that he's been given early in the season. You need to be throwing ice around more equally. Well, it helps when the guys who have played poorly thus far have strong games. And look, I came out swinging yesterday. I came out hard against not just Brandon Sutter, but especially Michael Furland, who was growing more and more concerning with each passing game. I did not like what I was seeing from Michael Furland. He comes out, and he has himself one heck of a performance. He's in on the forecheck. He's using he's using his speed. He's making plays. He His playmaking was on full display. Some fantastic passes as he exits the game with two assists. Uh, his best performance as a Vancouver Canuck. And, you know, we've talked about Furland's ice time of late, being below 10 minutes, being, you know, sometimes as low as I think he might have even been in the seven-minute range at one point on that road trip, possibly in the Detroit game last week. Uh, not the case here Last night, Michael Furland with two assists, a plus one on the night, and he played 12-51. There wasn't a single player on the Vancouver Canucks roster who played single-digit minutes. Uh, everybody uh, was up in the 10 somewhere. The lowest ice time of anyone in this game uh, for the Canucks, Jake Vertanen with 11:36, and even Jake played well. He was driving the net. He was making things happen. He was playing as an effective line mate. For Bo Horvat, Bo was the bull last night. He was seeing red as bull rushes were going. He was driving the puck hard along the uh, the boards as well, feeding into the middle, looking for a body out there to pot home the 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 chaos that he was creating uh, with his speed and with his ability to put pucks into the middle. Jake Vertanen was Johnny on the spot in that specific instance. Had the third goal of the night, which chased the Panthers goaltender Sam Montembeau, uh, who was chased and then came back as Bobrovsky got chased as well. As you know, we talk about Louis Erickson being an albatross contract. I really wonder what uh, Florida is going to have on their hands as the years go by with this long-term deal that is paying Sergei Bobrovsky $10 million a year. Yes, congratulations, Dale Talon. You got your man you were looking for between the pipes, but you know what you didn't get? The goalie coach who made him so good. That guy currently right here in Vancouver, and he is putting his talents on display as Thatcher Demko. Another sterling performance. He didn't need to do very much, but it was his playmaking, actually. Yes, the playmaking of a goaltender that got the scoring started for Vancouver in this one. As Demko came out of his crease, stopped the puck behind the net, and then made a perfect play to feed to the aforementioned Michael Furland and get that play started. Demko didn't wind up getting an assist because Josh Levo and Brandon Sutter each touched the puck before Furland got it back along the wall and fed into the middle for Sutter, but that was a very strong play just a minute and 14 seconds into the game as the Canucks came out hot and they didn't stop pressing from there. Tim Schaller even got in on the action. Schaller, his fourth goal in three games, he has already topped the entirety of his offensive contributions from last season at at least as far as goal scoring goes. He played 47 games for the team last year, if I am not mistaken. 
Yeah, 47 games. And in that time, he only managed three goals. He has four in his last three right now. He has been uh, red hot. And he even set up Jay Beagle on a breakaway opportunity as well. There were just no warts in this performance. There was nothing that you could point at and say, well, yeah, but everything went well for the Canucks in this one. Maybe, however, you could hang it on a weak opponent. That's what we said on uh, the home opener night, of course, when they dummied the LA Kings by an 8-2 score. Much to the chagrin of Drew Doughty, the LA Kings are not a very good team this year. And the Florida Panthers, look, they were sold as a, as a red-hot team, one of the hottest teams in the East coming into this one. Ultimately, they were 500 in their last eight games. 4-0-4. Yes, congratulations on getting a consolation point in all of your losses over the last eight games, but those were still losses. The fact that you had a point streak going, look, point streaks can be meaningless when you're ultimately a 500 team over the span of that streak. Uh, the Florida Panthers did not look like a team that had picked up 75% of all possible points in their last eight coming into this one. Also, as I mentioned in the preview on yesterday's show, missing Vincent Trocek in this lineup, a very important player for them in their top six, having to play Brian Boyle, a guy who didn't even have a team until I think October 20th. They only signed him about a week or so ago, a week and a half ago. He's already got two goals for them on the year, but then again, as I mentioned, that's an unsigned UFA 35-year-old depth center who's stepped right into this lineup in a top six role and has two game, two goals rather already for them in limited games played. That just goes to show where this roster is at, however, when you are desperate enough that when you have an injury to a guy like Vincent Trocek, the first thing you need to do is turn to the unsigned UFA junk pile and bring in a veteran depth guy, even if it seems to be working out for them. And in fact... <laughs> Even last night, Brian Boyle has one of the two Florida Panthers games for them on the night. But one of the criticisms that has been levied at this team, and I think fairly, it's something that I brought up yesterday on the show, and I know they go and embarrass me in all my criticisms by having the performance that they did against the Panthers, but some of those things still stick. The fact that, you know, as Daryl Keeping pointed out, they are one of the worst teams in all of hockey when they get a lead as far as what they continue to do and the style they continue to play. Uh, Corey Hirsch mentioned it several times on the radio broadcast last night, and can you tell that I'm the producer of the radio? broadcasts, given that I seem to know everything that goes on on them, uh, the home games anyways, uh, regardless. Corey Horsch mentioned that, you know, if you want to maintain a lead, you have to continue to act like you don't have a lead. You have to continue to play the same way. And that is not just a mindset thing for the players. That is a mindset thing for Travis Green as well. And as I mentioned, as far as ice time goes, that is exactly how they played. They did not over-rely on their shutdown lines. They kept rolling all four units exactly as they would if the game were uh, close and competitive. They let everybody get in a, a piece of the action, and they just kept hammering it, kept going, kept looking for more and more goals. They added, of course, a seventh goal finally uh, towards the end of the game in the third period. It was Brock Besser on a nice give-and-go play. Hughes to Pedersen to Besser. That's the kind of trio, that's the kind of playmaking that we want to see. That's what we sign up to watch when we uh, hunker down and plunk ourselves on the couch and, and watch these games for three hours and you know do this night after night. We want to see those guys connecting. That's the future of this team, uh, both... You 
you know, on the back end as far as Quinn Hughes goes. And up front, Brock Besser was the last guy to get a point. All 12 forwards got a point in this game. Besser's goal finally uh, got him off the schneid and helped him get in on the action towards the end in the third. But when you look at the ice time and it being spread around, like even the top flight forwards for this team, nobody played more than Brock Besser uh, up front with 16.44 in ice time. And 16.44 for the top line of this team is really not very much. Your ice time leaders on the back end, meanwhile... It was actually Jordy Ben. Jordy Ben played 20 minutes and 50 seconds in this contest. He played more than Quinn Hughes. He played more than everybody. He was the team leader. But we've talked about spreading around that ice and making sure that you don't overplay Alex Edler, making sure that you don't overplay a Chris Tanev so that those guys can stay healthy as the team goes on through the season and making sure that you get Troy Stetcher some extra ice time because he is one of those players. If you want to continue to drive play, if you want to get the puck out of your own zone and push things forward into the offensive end and and control shot share and all that stuff, Troy Stetcher is one of those positive players who can make those things happen, and that's exactly what happened in last night's action. Troy playing 19 minutes in 16 seconds, including a full minute on the penalty kill. It's almost like Travis listens to the show, because what was I saying earlier in the week or late last week, if you want to boost up Stetcher's ice time, use him for more than just one shift on the penalty kill, and it's not like the Canucks even had a ton of penalty killing to do on the night. Uh, the Panthers were 1-for-2 on the power play. The Canucks 0-for-2 on their man advantage. Uh, but, you know, that says a lot, I think, when there's just four minutes of power play time for the Panthers in the entirety of the game, and Troy Stetcher got to play a full quarter of it instead of just taking one shift. Now, the difference is negligible, I guess. In the end, he plays two shifts probably or maybe just had one lengthy one. Either way, that's a good way to get him some extra ice time. And it spread the ice all around. As I mentioned, Troy Stetcher played 19 minutes and 16 seconds. Everybody kind of in that 19-minute range, save for Jordy Ben, who was closer to 21. That's the kind of balance that's going to keep this team fresh. That's the kind of balance that's going to keep this team rolling. And that's how they played in the third period to make sure that they kept the pedal to the metal. They didn't exhaust any one line. They kept the shifts short as well. Nobody seemed to be on the ice in that third period for more than 40 seconds at a time. Everybody was going out there. It let them keep playing with pace. It let them keep playing an up-tempo style and really take it to the Panthers and not sit back at any point. And look, there might have been some mixed messaging here and there because there were some players after the game on Friday night. You know, we had Jay Beagle. I played the clip for you after Friday's game uh, in the post-gamer podcast for that one, talking about how we will learn from this. We have to go through these things in order to learn for the, from them. But there was mixed messaging after that game. You had Quinn Hughes, you know, talking to the media about, oh, there's nothing to learn from this. We'll just throw it in the garbage and move on and try for a better result next time. You know, <laughs> they did learn from it, though. They learned from it in terms of deployment. They learned from it in terms of how to play. Those were lessons, as I mentioned, not just for the players, but for the coaching staff as well. I do find it a little odd, though, that Vertanen's ice time does remain so low uh, game after game, even though he is nominally the top-line winger on the Canucks at the moment. Yes, I know that the so-called lotto line, 649, Besser, Pedersen, and Miller is ostensibly the actual top line of this team. 
but line rushes and and the way they practice and all of these things, the first line out on the ice is always the Horvat line, night after night. Uh, Horvat and whoever his wingers happen to be at the moment, Tanner Pearson and Jake Vertanen, they get treated like they are the top line when uh, broadcasters and the team themselves put their lineups out uh, before the game. So, you know, he... he He's not exactly uh, being used as a top-line winger. I mentioned already his ice time, 11.36, was the lowest of any forward on the Canucks, but it's not like Furland was that far in front of him. 12.15, probably just one more shift overall in the grand scheme of things, and I think a lot of it has to do just simply with the fact that Vertanen does not play special teams, either penalty-killing uh, or power play. I I, th- I honestly think he does have the skill set in terms of you know, battling along the wall and using speed and and all these things uh, to be an effective penalty killer. You don't need to be a Tim Schaller to kill penalties. You don't need to be a, uh, you know, Jay Beagle to kill penalties. One of the most dynamic penalty killers in the league, and sure, he might be off to a bit of a slow start this year, perhaps still recovering from the just horrific injury he suffered uh, towards the end of last season is a familiar name here around uh, these parts in Vancouver. Michael Grabner, who has three goals on the year, one of them a shorty. When you have that kind of speed, speed kills. Speed kills uh, at even strength. It kills shorthanded as well. And I think there might be more opportunities, honestly, if you if you trusted and trained Jake Vertanen in the art of penalty killing. His speed could create all kinds of shorthanded breakaway opportunities for him when teams are pressing, when teams are not necessarily playing the best defense that they do at even strength. There would be chances there for Jake to cut loose and and break down the ice, and you never know what would happen. I have the feeling that he could be good at this. He just isn't getting the chance. But, you know, ultimately, it's not like his ice time is being depressed all that much. When you look at uh, the, what Bo Horvat finished the night with, which on this evening was uh, about 15-18 in total ice time, two and a half minutes of that 15-18 came on the power play. So you subtract that, and you're looking at about 13 and change, and that's only two shifts that Jake Vertanen didn't get with him. So uh, it, it, it makes sense when you look at how the ice filters out. It's not like anybody was being benched or, or uh, misused or, or underutilized, I suppose. I would often make that case for Troy Stetcher, but as I already mentioned, he certainly uh, did not have to ride the pine very much on this night. And it's funny, I'm nearly 20 minutes into the episode now, and I have barely talked about... Elias Pettersson at all. Look, it has been a recurring talking point on this show uh, pretty much right from the beginning of the season that, you know, we aren't seeing these dominant performances that we have come to expect from the top talents on this team. You know, even going back to his rookie season, even last year's sophomore season when he was in a quote-unquote sophomore slump that wasn't much of a slump, mind you, Brock Besser has shown an ability to take over and dominate games the way that uh, Bo Horvat did in Detroit last week. We haven't seen that necessarily from Brock to start the year. We haven't seen it necessarily from Pedersen either, but maybe we have. Maybe we are just looking in the wrong places. Maybe we are missing the forest for the trees because this guy continues to put up points night after night after night after night. He is currently, as we speak, uh, Elias Pettersson, at the moment, tied for 10th overall in league scoring, 14 points on the year, and he's done it in fewer games with the guys he's tied with. Oh, by the way, the guys he's tied with in scoring on the season to this point are Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin. 
pretty fine company to find yourself in, especially when you have yet to quote-unquote take over a game. He is one point ahead of Austin Matthews and Braden Shen and you know Jonathan Huberto and all these guys who are thought to be elite scorers in the NHL. Elias Pettersson is an elite scorer in the NHL, and maybe this is what brilliance looks like. You know, uh, you hear so often about the banality of evil when it we are talking about the creeping rise of fascism in, in current uh, you know global politics. Maybe there's a banality of greatness as well. Maybe the greats can make it look so simple that you are missing how spectacular it truly is because Elias Pettersson, three assists on the evening tonight to help rocket him into that tie for 10th in overall league scoring. He didn't have, you know, the big shot, the the things that you look for from him, the things that you've been trained to look for from his performances in the past in his rookie season, but he is doing all kinds of uh, just incredibly flashy things as far as deeks and playmaking, and he even tried to do a little lacrosse goal uh, at one point in the game last night. He tried to get the puck onto his stick and do the wraparound lacrosse tuck in. He couldn't get it to go. He told, I think, Wyatt Arndt uh, in the armies after the game that he just had too much snow on uh, the blade of his stick. It wouldn't stick. uh, The puck wouldn't stick to his tape, I guess. So he said he'd been practicing that move in practice uh, quite a bit lately as well and just mentioned that he had the time and space to try and do it and figured, heck, why not? That's the kind of thing that we have not seen in this city. We have never had a player who thinks to themselves, well, I have time and space right now, and we are winning by whatever we're winning by, probably four, maybe uh, five goals at the time, who knows. Uh, He tried to get that puck onto his stick and do one of the flashiest moves you can possibly do. Uh, Ordinary players, you know, the kinds that we've seen over the last 50 years here in this city, they do not have the mindset to think, why don't I do this insanely weird, crazy, showy, flashy thing that I've been working on in practice just to try it and see if it works? Because why not? I'm having fun out here. His brain works on another level to even begin to attempt to do something like that. And and that just is a microcosm of the number of dynamic plays that he makes throughout games constantly that lead to nothing. You have to appreciate how creative, how flashy, how, uh, you know... It, ingenious he is in the things that he does with the puck even when they don't lead to goals even when they don't lead to points and things like that do actually happen for Pedersen all the freaking time he will constantly wow you if you pay attention to the small details of his game which includes his back checking look it's all these things that we would marvel over constantly throughout his rookie season and it's like we're bored of them already I don't know if that's what it is or that there's just a bunch of new shiny baubles new toys to play with here in Vancouver this year you know whether it's a Michael Furland that we're over examining looking for signs of life and finally got some in last night's game whether it's a Tyler Myers who you know uh <laughs> I think a lot of people had the knives out for, myself included, over the offseason and have come into the year looking for reasons to criticize, and he has not given us any. We are pouring over the details of all of these other players who are less significant in terms of how they uh, impact the bottom line here in Vancouver. I mean, no disrespect to Tyler Myers, his strong play on the uh, top pairing with Alex Edler has has proven me wrong, certainly, that not just him himself, but that pairing overall is one of the strongest pairings in the NHL at the moment, and I would not have predicted that even for one single second, you know, 
given Alex Edler's age and his fragility and given uh, you know Tyler Myers' reputation, uh, the things that the, uh, the Winnipeg fans had to say about him when that deal was signed, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I was inclined to believe those people because it reminded me of my frustration when we as a collective fan base here in Vancouver told Pittsburgh that they had just acquired an awful defenseman in Eric Goodbranson and nobody over there wanted to listen to us. We had a better idea than they did. Ultimately, they know now they've traded him to the Anaheim Ducks. But, you know, there was all kinds of reason to believe that Tyler Myers was not going to be great. He has been very good. That's neither here nor there. I want to put that aside. I'm just making the case that we are pouring over the details of lesser players looking for faults or looking for you know, flashes, signs of life, reasons to believe that they can be more than they are. We are not doing that with Elias Pettersson's game at all right now. We are just kind of taking it for granted that, of course, yes, he will quietly put up points. We are waiting for him to loudly put up points, and that is almost being spoiled. That is uh, that is almost, you know, it, it, we're taking for granted the greatness of this player. Just even looking at the standings uh, as far as scorers in the league go uh, after games lately has taken me back to being a fan of the West Coast Express teams, being a fan uh, back in 2002, 2003, where you know you would wake up in the morning and, and open the paper and the province every morning would have the overall uh, standings as far as scorers go. And your guys, whether it was Nasland or Bertuzzi, or even Morrison at the time would be highlighted within the list to let you see where they ranked within the the grand scheme of league scores. That was always an exciting thing uh, every morning. I used to remember doing that constantly as a fan back in the day. We haven't had a ton of players to do that with since the Sedins, you know, m- moved on from their prime and you know became kind of sixty point players instead of the hundred and eleven point players they had been not that long before. We haven't had a player who's been in the mix to potentially win an Art Ross. We haven't had that kind of player here. Uh, very often ever over the course of 50 years. We do have one now, and we aren't necessarily giving him the love that we should, given his play has simply been outstanding, even if it's been a little quieter uh, than we expected coming into the season. And with that, that's our show for the day. Uh, all that, and I barely even talked about Louis Erickson. I guess that leaves me something to dive into on tomorrow's episode, and I hope you will be back with me for that as well as uh, I look forward to this California road swing. Maybe even we'll be joined by a guest. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow will be a mailbag day as well. I always enjoy taking your questions. If you want to send in your questions when another mailbag episode does come around, you should probably Head on over to Twitter and uh, throw me a follow at LockedOnCanucks and uh, send me a question. I will answer every single thing that comes my way. And, of course, before I wrap up, do want to encourage you as well to uh, throw me a review wherever you happen to get this show from, whether that's iTunes or, uh, I guess, Apple Podcasts, as it's now called, Spotify. I don't know if you can leave reviews on Spotify, but you should try. Make sure uh, and see if you can, if that's where you're getting the show, wherever you're getting it. All I ask is if you enjoy the show every day, uh, just throw me a review. It gives us a little boost in the algorithms and helps new people find the program as well. If you don't enjoy the show, I mean, it's been 20 episodes of this thing now. Uh, I don't know what you're still doing here. So um, maybe you're hate listening. I guess that helps the stats too. Thank you for doing that. But uh, don't don't review me if you don't enjoy the program. That's, that's not good, and I don't want to hear from you. So. <laughs> 
until tomorrow morning when I come back to do this all over again and talk about how good Louis Erickson was last night. He actually was very, very good. Uh, this has been uh, your daily dose of Canucks coverage. I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette, and you've been locked in on Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.